0: Hello curiosity seekers and adventurous thinkers. Welcome to Applied Curiosity Lab Radio, the podcast for the relentlessly curious. This season, our host and Applied Curiosity Lab's chief curiosity seeker, Becky Saltzman, will be sharing the studio with ACL's chief experience producer and favorite sister, Jennifer Felberg. The lens is, and always will be, curiosity. Each week, fun and formal conversations center around one delectable curiosity bite, designed to give your brain the time and ideas to think about thinking, to flex your curiosity muscle, and maybe even revolutionize the way you think.
1: It's so weird. When you think of trips that we've had, adventures that we've had, doesn't it always seem like they were one or two or maybe three years ago at the max?
0: I think about our Philippine trip, that feels like just about a year ago, but I think it was a lot longer than that.
1: It's strange. Now, thankfully, Facebook reminded me that the trip that I took with Fred and the guys to Peru, hiking the Inca Trail up to Machu Picchu, I thought that was maybe five years ago, but... Facebook reminded me when I got the, re- the first post that I ever made was in 2009 from Peru with me and Fred and James in some cave. So it's been 10 years. Wow. And I was thinking about the trip on the way there. I met this woman in the Cincinnati airport. She was from Lima. We sat there and we talked and I was asking her about what I should do in Lima because after a week or five days in, on the Inca Trail, I was going to be in uh, Lima for twenty three hours, whatever she made me some made some suggestions. Asked when I would be there when my flight got in. Made some suggestions as to what I should do, and I didn't think much of it. You know, after hiking the trail and being there, I land in Lima, I get off the airplane, I kind of go through, get my baggage, and all of a sudden I hear Betsy, Betsy, and I kept walking because my name ain't Betsy, Betsy, Betsy. Finally, I turn around and there is the woman <laughs> that I barely recognized her that I had met when we were waiting in Cincinnati in the airport. She was going to Lima to see her dying mother, having been from Lima. And she was there with some guy. And she said, come with me. Come with us. She wanted me to put my luggage in this old jalopy with this guy that I later found out was her brother. And she was going to take me to go throughout Lima for the day. Now, I Yeah, I knew this woman. I mean it was a nice maybe we sat for max an hour in the airport on the way there and I'm looking at her and I'm looking at her brother and I'm thinking okay is this a warning sign or is this an opportunity and I made the decision to throw my luggage in the trunk and away we went now we ended up spending an incredible day I went to her home we she took me through all the ins and outs of Lima her sister drove us around her sister turns out was a principal at some school there and the sister's daughter, this is so random, was a professor of entomology at Oregon State University Hermiston campus. It turns out that her daughter was pregnant. This woman spent uh, spoke no English. This is the person that I met, sister, spoke no English. So after taking me around all of Lima and spent a wonderful day, she dropped me back at the airport. It was fantastic. Six months later, I was able to pick the sister up in the Portland airport and help facilitate her getting to Hermiston,
0: Oregon. Wow, what an amazing opportunity that was. It was so weird. I mean, I
1: haven't talked to them since, but this gets me to the curiosity bite.
0: Can you tell the difference between a great opportunity and a warning sign? I'm not sure I can give you that answer right away. I have had so many experiences that were amazing opportunities that... If I really looked into it and thought about it, I might not have taken those opportunities. Going on tour with my band or, you know, that was over one day. I had to make a quick decision and I went and I had the most amazing experience of my life. Why did you have to answer in one day? Why did, why did you only have one day? They invited me and said, you need to show up in Salt Lake City tomorrow and go on tour with us. And that was three years later I had the most amazing time Almost like running away with a circus. If I had thought of it as a warning sign. What do you mean three years later? I toured with them for three years. Oh. Off and on. Yeah. And made two albums with three albums with them. And that was one of the most amazing experiences of my life. If you had looked for warning signs, what would it have been or what would they have been? I don't know them very well. They were all men. I didn't know the itinerary. Showing up somewhere where I did not know anyone, didn't know if someone would actually meet me there, what what to expect, all of those things could have been warning signs. But for me, I thought, heck, I'm throwing caution to the wind and I'm going just like you did in Peru. But I think also
1: maybe you were in your 20s and so the downsides might not have been as severe. I don't know. I think about, I've been watching that Michael Jackson documentary, H- HBO documentary, and I was thinking about the families that had the opportunity to allow their sons to share a bed with Michael Jackson. And when you look at these families, it's really, and listen to their story, and it's a really well-done documentary, whether you come away believing one way or the other is irrelevant to the point, which is at first this guy, this wonderful, talented amazing, revered guy, probably one of the most revered people on the planet, comes to the family and here's this little house in Simi Valley, California and he comes in and he says, this is the only place where I feel at home and he's almost like a child and you get to know him in a way that you think no one else knows him. But everyone else validates your positive feelings for him by admiring him and loving him and slowly but surely enough happens where there is a moment that you are going to, as a mother or a father, allow your child, seven-year-old, five-year-old child, to share a bed with the door shut with a grown man. And when I put it that way, it seems like such an obvious warning sign. But when you're watching this unfold, And you're seeing that your son has this opportunity. And not only is it a theoretical opportunity, he's already now been on stage with Michael Jackson. He's already been in music videos. He's already been on television. You've already had limousines pick you up in Paris and in Tokyo. You've already experienced, and it's just the tip of the iceberg of what you think is going to be in store for your talented son. And all of that is justified because everyone else says this guy is great. And there is a moment where you have to acquiesce to allow your child to sleep with this other child who happens to be a grown man. And at that moment, you might have those warning signs, but they are so overpowered by the opportunity that you have seen and that you can come to expect that it's not that you don't see it as a warning sign, you just weigh the opportunity as worth it. But you don't even know that you're weighing that is worth it. And I'm not so sure that that wasn't any different, although the stakes were higher for a young child. So, but the process, the human process of thinking about that, I'm not sure that that's any different than it was for me throwing my luggage in the old jalopy and off I go through Lima or you in one day having to quit your job, fly to Salt Lake City and show up It's just that it ended well for us. Mm -hmm. And how should we unpack this? How should we think about warning signs
0: versus opportunities? And should we live our life not taking chances for fear that they are warning signs? You know, I have friends that would absolutely in no way, shape or form do what you did or do what I have done. Absolutely not. And I think they miss out on a lot of opportunities and a lot of experiences, and maybe they don't care, but I would. Maybe they don't care is the key. I mean, maybe they're seeing things and the comfort that they get. Do you
1: think that they encounter fewer dangers that actually play out? I'm not talking about hypothetical or potential dangers, but do you think that the people who don't do those kinds of things, your friend that you mentioned, do you think that they experience fewer dangers, not just threats, but actually manifest as dangers?
0: Well, actually... There are certain dangers that I think that they have to live with by not going on an adventure or, or an expedition that they feel is safe. What's a danger that they experience? I think maybe some health, some, uh, I mean, dangers, uh, maybe not dangers, but mi- missing out on certain things. No, that, that's not what I'm talking mm, about. Dangers.
1: Do you, have you experienced greater dangers that have actually manifest as a result of taking advantage of more
0: opportunities or have you just been luckier thus far? I think I've probably been lucky. Or do I have some, you're going to love this, instinctual feeling that allows me to know if it's a warning sign or an opportunity. I don't know, maybe. Maybe I'm better than everybody else. You might be better. I've had an opportunity to ask people
1: about these curiosity bites over the years, and this is one of them. And this one is interesting because when I've asked men, and of course, this is not exclusively. This is definitely in my unscientific, non-even sort of research. When I've asked men this question, whether they can tell the difference between a great opportunity and a warning sign, the men talk about investments, sometimes business opportunities, but more about investments, not even business opportunities. And for the most part, the women always talk about relationships. I think about a time when I was at a bar here in Portland I was single and we met these guys and they invited us to go have this adventure and they said first come with us to this other bar get in our cars whatever but there were enough warning signs with these guys that and I could articulate what they were which was a kind of a high pressured sales a decision to make right away a little bit of ribbing us for not doing it where we might feel guilty or we might feel stupid And those were kind of warning signs where if you don't do this, you're being mean to me. Or if you don't, I'm insulted. Or if you don't do this, you're stupid. And you have to decide quickly. So those were enough warning signs. And it turns out that the guy was later, not much later, like a month later in the paper for having made the same, presenting the same opportunity to two other women. And ended up, this one woman ended up dead. The guy ended up in jail. And so I always thought I was so proud to have skirted that dangerous situation. So I focus on relationships as a woman and that's where I really think about the warning signs and dangers. But the guys always tend to talk about, when I asked Stephen, he talked about as a venture capitalist, how they balance the warning signs from the opportunities and how they broke that down. And yet you think about Bernie Madoff. Speaking of Bernie Madoff, guess how long it's been since
0: Bernie Madoff was busted? It seems like just yesterday. Seems like all that went down like Again, maybe a year ago. Ten years ago this past December. So you're saying that when you were in Machu Picchu, (laughs) Bernie Madoff was making off with everybody's money. Yes. And the thing about Bernie Madoff
1: is it wasn't just fools. He had his friends fooled. He had his religious fellow religious parishioners fooled, but he also had like UBS fooled. UBS, I think those banks took eighty million dollars in fees that were just associated with investing in Bernie Madoff and it was just the most traditional Ponzi scheme ever the warning signs were that anyone who asked to see more about the financials and what substantiated the financials would get excluded from participation ooh and nobody likes to be excluded right Mm -hmm. and the warning sign is if you ask too many questions you're being annoying you just don't trust me, you need to take a chance, you're not risky enough, you're not adventurous enough. So if you start to feel that kind of pressure or judgment either inflicted upon yourself or by someone else, that's clearly a warning sign. Mm -hmm. The first Ponzi scheme, you know where Ponzi scheme came from? Where? It was from Charles Ponzi in 1919. And the thing about it is, as you do a little investigation Ponzi scheme, the first people in... They're the people that usually get their money out. The later people are used to finance. The earlier people, so on and so forth. But when you do the research on the Ponzi scheme, the first person to have really been identified as someone who did one of these pyramid schemes was this woman. And she didn't even get credit for this. Of was, course not. Her name was Sarah Howe. And it was in, 1918, in the 1980s through the Ladies Deposit where she offered solely female clientele
0: an eight percent monthly interest rate and then she stole the money that the women had invested wait a minute mm-hmm. you said that ponzi started in eighteen something something and she started in 1980 so how is she the 1880 first? oh you said 1980
1: <laughs> oh she started in 1880 and she didn't even get credit they should have called it the
0: sarah house scheme typical
1: mm-hmm.
0: it's funny i was researching of course trying to find a list your list And there were only two kinds, financial and relationship. Why do you think women focus on relationship
1: in terms of warning signs versus opportunities? And men, again, not exclusively, but for the most part, our sort of fact study, (laughs) why do men then focus primarily on investments?
0: I'm not quite sure, but of course, my initial reaction is...
1: Okay, your initial reaction is, why do women have to focus on relationships and men get to focus on investments, right? Is that what you're saying?
0: Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) I think I'm going to get reamed right now. (laughs) (laughs) You're
1: not going to get reamed, but I think that that stems from, it reminds me, and again, not to get too far off topic, but it reminds me when I was first going into real estate and I was mostly doing commercial real estate at the time. And a couple of guys said to me, and it seemed like it was coming as a compliment, yeah, you really seem more like a commercial realtor or commercial real estate broker or agent than a residential. And I thought, why is that? I mean, I didn't know because I didn't know anything about real estate, so I didn't have any preconceived notions about whether a commercial realtor is, or a real estate agent is one thing and residential is another. But it was definitely, it seemed as a, like it was a compliment. It was clear that these men and people thought that commercial real estate was far more complex And having done both, yes, maybe commercial real estate involves more numbers, but I assure you it's nothing beyond basic math. There's no physics or calculus involved in commercial real estate. And I would say that in terms of how hard it is, I would not say it's harder having done both than residential real estate. But again, people... Feel that residential real estate is primarily relationship-driven, and commercial is primarily investment-driven. And there seems to be a preference or a value. And it seems kind of like you have that
0: same prejudice. I'm sorry, <laughs> I'll <laughs> never do it again. Because I really no, I do. I, I there is a little bit there, yeah. That's why do women always have to be the ones that focus on relationship and men are – I mean, you're the one that said that, that that's true, and that men focus on uh, the financial – opportunity. At least this sort of fact, this sort of fact research. From PU. This was not PU. This was not prestigious
1: university. This was just from my Becky anecdotal research. But it did seem like that. Although I would argue, and we can get back to warning signs and opportunities, but I would argue that there is no investment that doesn't involve human behavior at its core. And I can also argue that Bernie Madoff's relationships are what enabled him to
0: execute this Ponzi scheme with such grace and effectiveness. So I have a list. Yay. It's about the science of decision-making, and it's five ways to make the right decision every time. Oh, I love it. Okay. Okay. Number one, focus on the big picture. They're saying you should focus on the big picture? Yes. Give me an example. When you're making a decision on a day-to-day basis, you need to think, what is my ultimate goal? Got it. Not just on that day-to-day I don't feel like going, so I'm not going to go. All right. So this makes me think about you and this
1: Airbnb that you're thinking of (sighs) launching. You have this idea that you want to redo your basement. You're about to be an empty nester and it's going to be really cool because you live in a very cool area where it may work well for people who want to stay at an Airbnb. So you make it all pretty, but are you focusing on the big picture? Number one, how much money? Number two, how much time? Number three, what is the impact on your family in terms of people coming and going? But people say, oh, it's cool to have an Airbnb. And people think to themselves, eh, it's a little extra money. I think a lot of Uber drivers and Lyft drivers say the same thing. I'm just sitting around watching soap operas anyway. I might as well be driving. So they're not thinking of the big picture, which is, what do you want? What do I want? Do I want to have money? Am I retired and I just want to have social interaction? And if so, is this the best way to have social interaction? Should I maybe join a meetup group? Or is the fact that everyone's doing these Airbnbs or Ubers or Lyfts means that that's what I should do, too. I think also that has to do with the availability heuristic. When people hear about other people doing something, then they think, wow, that's something that I should be doing. It just comes easily to mind versus focusing on the bigger picture. What am I trying to achieve? So, and
0: I, you, Yeah, and you've been walking me through all of these things, all of these big picture decisions so that I can make these smaller decisions to lead to that ultimate big picture. I think
1: that's good advice, the big picture decision. I don't know how that would apply to when you went off with KMFDM, but my guess is that at the time... Your goal of working at the recording studio wasn't to be the receptionist at the recording studio. Your goal was to have a moment in time where your talent intersected with an opportunity and you were ready to pounce. So I would argue that the challenge and the opportunity had been well thought out long before KMFDM came there and offered you that opportunity.
0: What's the second one? We need to recognize and overcome the sunk cost bias.
1: All right. The I sunk knew you cost would love that. I think the sunk cost is one of the things that people overlook so often. Actually, this is a Particularly interesting because we talk about this in our workshops, but the example that I think is the best example of when I fail to notice the sunk cost bias is when I go to a really crappy movie and I spend 20 bucks uh, myself. Steven spends 20 bucks. Maybe we get some hot tamales if I'm bad and we sit and eat the hot tamales, and I'm sitting in this movie and we're looking at each other, and it totally sucks. But we've paid the $20. Mm-hmm. And To get up and leave, we don't want to waste the $20. But what we don't understand and think about is we're not getting that $20 or $40 combined back whether we stay in the movie or not. And the only thing that we can measure it against is the opportunity cost. So now I'll turn to him and say, is this a sunk cost? And he'll say, yes. And we'll take our hot tamales. And we'll go for a delicious cocktail and we will be no poorer, but we will use that time. Maybe we'll be a little poorer if we had more than one drink. I was going to say, knowing you. Or we'll go home. You know, we'll go home and we'll watch a movie at home or we'll go to the gym or we'll do something. That $40 is a sunk cost. You're you're never going to get that back. And I think a lot of people in real estate, I used to see it all the time. People would say, but I spent X amount of my home and I put all this money into it and I'm moving and I need to sell it and I don't want to sell it if I can't make this amount of money. And not because it's worth it, not because the market is suggesting it, but because I put that money in. Well, you're never going to get that money out. And what is the opportunity of selling that house now and maybe negotiating on the other end, getting a better deal because you've sold your house, your liquid, whatever. That sunk cost is something that people really need to spend more time on. Or the sunk cost, opportunity cost of you taking one job versus the other because it's easy and someone offered it to you.
0: Or staying in that job because you've already been at it for four years. Yeah, that's uh,
1: great. I love that
0: one. That's Mm -hmm. great. What's the next one? In 2013, there was a study about meditation and how that can help you fight against that need for that to keep going with a sunk cost and that it actually helps you make the right decision. So I know you're really into meditation right now. Not really into meditation, I'm trying. but you're trying. Yeah, I mean, that's
1: my goal. I've been trying. I've been using, I'll do a shout out. I really like Sam Harris's waking up app, but that's because I'm kind of in love with Sam Harris and he just changed the name of his podcast to making sense. Mm-hmm. So if there was any shout out for a podcast other than this, that I love so much, it would be, and I know you're a big fan I as am. well, mm-hmm. but have you tried his waking up Uh, meditation app. It's fantastic. Barclay uses it too. It's really good. I'm not supposed to say this, but I'm not good at meditation, but I know that we're also not supposed to be trying to get good at it. I can't help but think that I need to try to be better because I don't know how else to articulate continuing to do something with no hope of, if if I can't call it getting better, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. A goal, some kind of goal. But I do think that meditation and being in the moment allows us to measure sunk costs more effectively. So that's interesting.
0: Yeah. Creating a necessary environment will help you make a better decision, which totally makes sense to me. You want to go to the gym, but you didn't pack clothes when you go to work. That's not going to allow you to have that success.
1: Or I think that's really good because even understanding, I keep thinking back to you giving up everything and jumping on a plane to Salt Lake City with KMFDM. Or I know a recent trip that you were in. Where were you? Were you you were somewhere recently and you met some people and got in the car and drove kind of like the Peru Lima situation. Belize. Belize. What happened? I remember you had this amazing adventure, and I thought to myself, how did you know that it was not a warning sign that you should be heeding, but instead an opportunity. Now, before you answer, I will tell you, before you went, you told me that you have every intention of finding an opportunity for an adventure. I wonder if that preparation enabled you to make the decision that this is not a scary situation. Because when you hear about it, it kind of sounds a little sketch.
0: Mm-hmm. Versus um, maybe you were in the right environment. You created the right mental environment for yourself. I don't know. how. I think maybe you're on to something. Maybe I have always had in the back of my mind a bigger picture, and I just don't think about it when that opportunity arises that I have that bigger picture in my mind, and that's why I'm able to make the right decision. Never thought about it. Until. Or maybe you don't always, because maybe you don't always make the right decision, but maybe in the decisions that you're talking about where you chose adventure, you might have done a lot of mental work that you're not giving yourself credit for doing. Yeah, I think that's what I was trying to say. But you're right, it hasn't always ended up as an opportunity. There have been not beneficial outcomes from that as well. But
1: I mean, mean, it's not like every decision that any of us make is ever perfect, but I like these decision-making tactics. Mm -hmm. I would argue that, again, if you're curious about what your objective is and when you feel a little, hmm, that little pause, then rather than say, I'm going to go with my gut – You say, okay, why was that pause? What was that? I'm going to listen to that, or I'm not going to listen to that. Or you can ask one more question. So in the example of the Bernie Madoff, all the people who asked for too much information were kicked out of the opportunity to be in Bernie Madoff's reindeer games. That should have set off an alarm. I think a lot of times we fail to ask questions because we're seen as not valuing someone we are second-guessing someone we're seen as being prying we're seen as being stupid I think a lot of times I feel confused by stories that people tell me and I have to grapple with am I just stupid because everyone else seems to get this story and then I ask a question and I've actually been told you know you're so intense you're always having to ask questions and I think but then I'd rather not hear the story because I can't just sit there confused when the pieces don't fall into place and sometimes I just was confused but other times I really don't think the pieces were falling into place. And that's when I move it into the warning sign versus opportunity. Because I'm not, as you know, I'm a big adventurer. Mm -hmm. I take all kinds of chances. And there's probably some times where I think I got lucky. There's no question. I would argue that anyone who has ever texted while driving in their entire life need to absolutely attribute everything that happens in their life to luck not to skill, not to hard work, whatever. Because the difference between someone who texted and killed someone and me is luck. Yeah. Yeah. Is there
0: anything else on the list? I think that's good. I think if you have those things, a bigger picture, knowing your value, setting the environment to something that will help you succeed, all of those things, the uh, sunk cost bias, I think you'll be open to those opportunities.
1: I do too. I will leave everyone with a question called a curiosity bite. Please feel free to reach out to us, tell us your answer, share your thoughts. You can go to applycuriositylab.com. All of these episodes are in the show notes to which you can respond. We love it. We will respond to any comment, but here is your curiosity bite. Can you tell the difference between a great opportunity and a warning sign? And a follow-on is, if the answer is yes, how. Thanks for listening, and I really hope you enjoyed the episode. Before you take off, I have a few more things to let you know about. One, you can find show notes for every episode of ACLR and links to all resources mentioned at applycuriositylab.com forward slash blog. It's there that we'll wait to read your answers to each week's curiosity bite. Two. In order to avoid missing curiosity-bitten conversations, subscribe to Applied Curiosity Lab Radio on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and all the other spots that podcasts hang out and wait to be discovered. Toss up a review, especially if you have nice things to say. Finally, for all things Apply Curiosity, including information on workshops and your free membership to the tribe of the curious, go to applycuriositylab.com. In the meantime, elevate curiosity.